Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of You Have to Watch This, episode 12. I'm your host, Ted Ryan, and I'm joined by my usual co-host, Clayton Terry. Hello. And last week, we had our good friend Connor McKee of Soul Human Jams on. And this week, we are also joined by another guest, my friend, Brennan Fairley. Hello. What we decided to do for this week's episode was that we would do peak genre film. And the genres we decided upon were peak crime, peak horror, and peak Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> film. So, we will now roll the ceremonial die. Yeah, so we don't have an actual die this time, so we're going to have Siri do it. Brennan, our guest, is going to be 1-2. Ted, you're going to be 3-4, and four, and I will be 5-6. So let's see what Siri decides. Hey, Siri, roll a die. It's 1. It's 1. Okay, so uh, I chose peak horror as my genre. And for my film, I chose Alien. Uh, it's probably my favorite movie of all time, if I had to narrow it down to one. And for those of you that don't know, Alien is a film about a crew on the spaceship Nostromo. They answer a distress call and go down to an alien planet. And uh, hijinks ensue. <laughs> <laughs> so when were you first introduced to Alien? When, was, when did you discover it? I think probably through my dad, and I almost wonder if I went back after seeing Alien vs. Predator. I think <laughs> that may have been my path of uh, Alien Discovery, but I'm not sure. It's It's been so long now that it just it feels like it's been a part of my life forever. <laughs> so you saw Alien vs. Predator, got the xenomorph in your mental canon, and then you were like, I'm going to go back and see where this all started. Yes, I, th I think that's what it was. And why do you think this movie captures horror in the sense that it's one of the best entries in that genre? It's just, it's so claustrophobic, and the atmosphere and the feeling of dread I have throughout the entire film, it just never leaves me, and it sticks with me after I watch the film in a way that a lot of other horror movies don't. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the strongest elements for me in the film is the sense of claustrophobia, and... I remember the way they like constructed the spaceship sets was that like there was only one entrance in and out of set. So like you had to go through all the hallways to get to your like scene that you would shoot that day. So, you know, the actors really could play off of that true claustrophobia that they felt. Right. And I think the use of practical effects as well, getting to react to a real alien or, you know, real in the context of the movie, mm -hmm. a physical prop and actor really like added to the reaction of the actors definitely, definitely. yeah <laughs> yeah i mean there's the story with the chestburster scene where it's the crew didn't know exactly how that was gonna go i think um i forget the actress's name and also her character's name but the one the blood explodes onto her face and that was like a genuine scream because they didn't know there would be a physical element to it lambert i think lambert, was her name yeah I think I first found out about Alien myself. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen these videos, but there was a series of cartoons online in the early 2000s. It was called like Film Bunny or like Film Rabbit or something like that, like 30 second movies or something. And like it was these little animations where these rabbits would like reenact 
movies in like in like a humorous way. I think you dreamed this. <laughs> it was, all my family has seen it because my my aunt first discovered it on the early internet. Uh, and there was one for Alien, and I watched all the videos even if I hadn't seen the movie. And I think I got it on Netflix DVD not long after that. And I remember my mom described the monster to me beforehand. And I like drew what I imagined it to be beforehand. And like, she was like, yeah, that looks like it. It looked nothing like it. Hmm. Yeah, this film uh, similarly, like I feel like has always been like a big influence on me. Like I just, from the art, the like, production design and the, the creature work from H.R. Giger, you know, and like the, when they're exploring the alien vessel, that's probably one of my favorite sequences ever put to film with the, I think it's Jerry Goldsmith, uh, his music. I'm not sure, but that kind of like gentle, creepy music just seeping in, you know, and it's just very quiet. The soundtrack across the entire film is so incredible. I think from the opening scene where the title is slowly being mm-hmm. revealed line by line, which I think is just like a great like thesis statement for the rest of the film. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it almost feels like as the horror gets uh, increases and like the stakes get higher, it feels like the soundtrack becomes like more distorted and like stranger sounds. Like it starts with like a familiar orchestra, like, you know, a very earth-like sound. You know, I'm thinking towards like the end when like um, people are dying. Uh, very intense atonal sounds are introduced. Yeah, I don't want to get too into spoilers too quickly, but towards the end of the film, the soundtrack pretty much goes away and all you hear is the sirens mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. the gas and explosions of the ship and the soundtrack doesn't come back until like the end of the film mm-hmm. when you get... The release. The release of the conclusion. Definitely. And it's, I mean, if my memory serves me correctly, it's back to that kind of familiar orchestra thing. It's like, as the crew is attacked by this literal, this alien creature, um, this literal foreign uh, entity, the music transforms into almost a foreign entity in itself, you know, to capture that kind of theme. It's like the ship itself descends into, like, hell as they're, like... Mm-hmm. being hunted down by this creature yeah and it's just the coherence of every element in the film like that working in with the like very confined set design as we see especially later in the film when we're trapped in be it vents or hallways or tiny rooms with crew members you may or may not be able able to trust it all just works together so succinctly in a way that's almost hard to pinpoint but you definitely feel it when you're watching the movie. I should say we watched this in theaters, which was yes. an amazing experience thanks to Fathom Events. Brick saw it at a Cinemark Tinseltown. Thank you for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shout out to Tinseltown and Fandango. You'll hear more about them at the end of the episode. But yeah, we got to see it for the 40th anniversary. And I feel like, you know, you can only experience a film so much on a screen at home, but being able to see it on a big screen with a great sound system, like really immersive and breathtaking. Yeah, I felt sucked into the film. And this had to have been like near the 40th time I've seen it as well. Right. It's, and I feel like every time I find something new to appreciate. Mm-hmm. 
How old were the both of you when you first saw it? Because I feel like I had to have been like elementary school or younger. Oh I want to say maybe eight or nine. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> Did, I, was this your first time seeing it when we went to go no, see it? No, no, I had seen it. I, I'd only seen it once before. I must have watched it. I think I watched it Halloween time of my senior year in high school because wow. we did, don't wow me, <laughs> um, we did in my film analysis class genre debates. So I <laughs> my, I told my group, I was like, I'm just going to do this project because they were not into movies at all. <laughs> and I one of my friends who was also really into movies picked The Shining and then we kind of faced off. Oh. And, and we got to show scenes. So I like showed the chestburster scene and some other scenes that really captured why i think it's one of the best horror movies and then josh was his name got to show a bunch of cool scenes from the shining and it was definitely a highlight in that class and the reason i saw alien so you've had this discussion before what do you mean about why alien is the greatest horror movie (laughs) yeah (laughs) i I actually think the shining is a decent competitor but yeah for sure but we're not talking about that today we're not (laughs) so stop Check in next episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about The Shining and Dr. Sleep. Whoa. That's coming out. That, has that come out? Who knows? I think it comes out in a couple weeks, if not already. I don't know. Who cares? It, it might have come out already, but... This is dating the episode. <laughs> Shit, yeah. <laughs> we have to edit it and get it up quick. <laughs> we'll just be talking about whatever new thing is coming out this yeah, week. I'll, I'll edit in like, yeah, I can't believe Cats, the live action <laughs> just premiered. <laughs> Uh, and speaking about cats, let's talk about the performances in this film. Jonesy! Great cat. I love all the actors in this film. All of them are relatively unknown, with the exception of maybe John Hurt, uh, as the guy who gets face-hugged. And, you know, besides Sigourney Weaver, uh, none of them have really had huge careers after this. So it's like... It, it aids in that kind of like, you don't see actors, you see the characters in it. And they really, it feels like everyone really brings something to the role. And just a lot of like great performances in this. And the way they play off of each other. I think what's exciting about Sigourney Weaver's performance and that character of Ellen Ripley is you don't see necessarily the vulnerability that you usually see in female protagonists in horror movies like i think of shelly duvall's performance in the shining which is pretty amazing and really captures the feeling that i think anyone would probably have in that situation and sticking with someone uh in like an abusive relationship but you don't get that so much with ellen ripley she is the one in the beginning that doesn't let them back in she has the resilience through the whole movie Not to say that she's never scared or never freaks out, but you trust that this character is competent and isn't going to make some of the mistakes that your average horror protagonist might. And I think that's why her character is what perfectly transitions this film franchise into action as we move further into the movies. I think if she was more of a standard horror protagonist, especially a female horror protagonist, it would have been harder to make that jump. The thing I love about all that is that she was originally written without a gender in mind, and they just kind of cast Sigourney Weaver. And um, I think a trap that a lot of horror movies fall into with an ensemble cast is that from the very beginning, you know who the main character is, and mm -hmm. you're like, okay, 
who's going to get picked off next. But from the very beginning of Alien, you don't really know who the main character is. Yeah. And maybe it's Dallas, like you think it's Dallas, but by the end of the film, it's clear that it was not Dallas who's the main character. I think we've been dancing around it. Would you want to kind of move into spoilers and deep, dive deeper into some of the stuff we're talking about? Yeah, I yeah. think it's time. Basically, the premise of Alien is that they find an alien on an alien ship. On an alien planet. <laughs> on an alien planet. The alien goes alien. He starts killing people. Alien style. <laughs> alien style, <laughs> not predator style. And uh, yeah, as you know, more and more people get picked off. Kind of another one of spoilers. I want to dive deeper into that idea that Ripley originally didn't have a gender because the movie's playing on so much of like the horror, like sexual horror, I feel like. Yeah, the main horror, I think the like the design philosophy is playing on the fear of male rape, mm-hmm. like men getting raped. Yeah, I think the creature itself is very much like its head is a giant penis. Like yeah. it's rape personified as a creature. It forces itself onto you. Yeah. It it looks like um like its breathing sacs look like mm-hmm. genitals. Mm-hmm. The alien creature itself, like as it evolves, is very sexually designed as well. Yeah, the phallic like extra mouth that comes out of his mouth. I mean, it's. His I don't head know. is phallic too. It's dripping it is, with yeah, it's all phallic. You know, clear, sticky liquid at all times is just constantly dripping everywhere. It also penetrates its victims. It does, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you think it's specifically male rape or rape in general? Because I would more so generalize it. I think I don't know. I remember reading once that it was specifically male rape because mm-hmm. that's more of a, a foreign fear. Interesting. I wonder how much of that is the original screenwriter slash Ridley Scott, or if it's like H.R. Geeker's design kind of brought that to life. Yeah, I don't know. I think what would give credence to that is definitely the chestburster scene, which yes. is in a way essentially a pregnancy of a, like right. a parasite, you know, and like yeah. something completely unnatural to like the male form, mm-hmm. you know, and like that being forced upon. John Hurt's character. I forget the character names, but... Kane. Kane. And since you bring up the chestburster scene, I think it's frustrating, right? Because imagine being in the theaters. You're like the perfect age for this movie, like 14 uh, or 16, 18, whatever I was when I did the film. <laughs> or eight months. years old. <laughs> or eight years old, because <laughs> your parents apparently just don't care. Um, <laughs> but, and you don't know what's, you don't know where that alien went that was on his head. Um, you assume it's maybe somewhere else in the cabin, and that's what's going to happen. But instead, you see it come out of the of John Hurt's character of Kane, and you see the genuine reactions from the cast. Can you imagine not having that ingrained in pop culture, being able to see that? Because I think about our audience, and they weren't necessarily annoying, but people were laughing because that scene has been so parodied, where it's like, and it to the point where I felt comfortable bringing it up in the non-spoiler section. It's like everyone knows that part of the movie, and even if they haven't seen it, maybe they've seen Spaceballs, or I'm sure The Simpsons has played on it, and it takes away from that, and I find that frustrating and something I can never really get back, you know? I'm never not going to know Luke is Darth Vader's son. Yeah, I think that's the the frustrating part of pop culture when, you know, it takes away from the original art, but I still 
whenever I revisit these types these types of films, I try to ignore everything else and try to imagine it as if I was experiencing it for the first time. I don't know if I was able to do it for Alien, but that is frustrating. And kind of also building off of that, some of the jump scares, like, these are some of the best jump scares ever. You know, I'm thinking about the vent scene where Dallas oh, is in the with the flamethrower. That one always gets me no matter Same. how many times I see it. Like, yeah, if you, like, pause it, it is pretty goofy, like the alien pose, but it's such a great buildup of, like, the score and, like, the people yelling at each other. Like, in that moment, I was able to experience it again for the first time. Probably building on that, my favorite sequence of horror is definitely Ellen Ripley running through the hallways at the end of the movie with the sirens blasting and just the extreme close-up of her face sweating and you see the siren like panning across there's so much sweat in this film (laughs) i feel like i have to interject we haven't mentioned that yet it's so sweaty everyone's got huge pit stains they dripping at all times they dripping (laughs) they dripping at all times um i do think i prefer the director's cut even though Ridley Scott says he still prefers the theatrical, I like seeing Dallas in the cocoon, and it feels like there's a couple extra seconds or maybe minutes of Ellen Ripley running through the hallways. I do, I do kind of miss all that. I think one thing that I really love about this film is that how much of it isn't explained, and how yeah. much is left in darkness. Every time we see the alien we don't get the full image of it until the very end. You know, you know, if it's first the chest burster, and then the next time we see it, it's like the like a snake skin, like it shed its skin, mm-hmm. and then we only see like its head as it attacks um I forget his name, but he the first the first kill. Uh, Brett. Brett. Uh and you know, and then the vent scene, and then, you know, we only get glimpses of it. And so you you're kind of like in an almost like perverse way you're like curious like what is this thing like what is it and like i don't like how the way this series has been a has become a franchise where in which it's like it's the xenomorph with posters where it shows the entire xenomorph in the dvd cover it's like you're really doing the film a disservice by showing it yeah and you know i I feel like i saw posters for rides and like things at theme parks with the alien it in costume before I saw the actual film. And I wish in terms of like the franchise, you know, I think with the exception of aliens, like I wish it was a different creature for like each film. Like I don't, I love the Xenomorph, but I think the sequels have kind of ruined the magic of the original film a little bit. To an extent, they have tried to do that. Like, the third movie had the dog alien, but basically just looks like a regular xenomorph on all fours. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fourth movie, Alien Resurrection, had, like, a human-alien-Ripley hybrid thing that was super bizarre. I kind of like it, but the way it acted was just weird. It, like, cries at the end of the film. It's like a baby. This is a whole tangent. We can't get into (laughs) this, but... uh, But you know what I'm saying of, like... There's so much mystery in the film, and I feel like when there's so much extra merchandise, it kind of like is frustrating. And that's why I hate Prometheus, and I guess they touch on it more so in Alien Covenant so much, because you look at the title of this movie, Alien, it's obviously used as a noun to describe the xenomorph infiltrating 
the ship, but it's also an adjective in the sense that, like, this is a completely alien creature to these humans. It is the perfect organism. And then to see Alien Covenant and be like, oh, that perfect organism was made by something made by humans, you know? It was made by an android. And that takes away so much of the alien nature of that first movie. The idea that, like, oh, if you trace it back far enough, it still goes back to humans. I find that incredibly annoying to the point where I just don't consider any movie other than the first two canon. (laughs) (laughs) And I... I think it totally plays into that idea of taking away from the original mm-hmm. uh, intentions of this movie. He pulls a guy into the back room and says, "Like, look at look at what I've made." And as an audience member, you're maybe thinking, "Oh, did he make an alien queen?" No, he just made the eggs. Right. Like, wh- where did the egg come from? <laughs> what did he make the eggs out of? Doesn't make any sense. And I wish the series just ended after Aliens. Yeah. Can we talk about Aliens for just a couple minutes? Sure. Because I know, Brennan, you've said if you could consider the movies one movie, that and is your favorite Yes, movie. Alien and Aliens back-to-back would be my favorite for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost feels like the first act and the second act. You know, like yeah. the, the setup and the introduction of Ripley and the creature and then the, the return and fighting back against the mm-hmm. creature. Like fear and then defeating that fear yeah there's so many things that are built upon in aliens that are such great payoffs for a fan of the first movie Mm -hmm. and it's such a different film but not in a bad way i think it's one of the greatest sequels of all time and if i were to pick peak action genre aliens would for sure be my pick honestly same yeah aliens are diehard i think perfect action movies i I actually prefer Aliens, I think. I love Alien, and I saw that first. Um, I watched Aliens so I could see Alien Covenant in theaters. (laughs) (laughs) But I I love the movie so much, especially, again, with extended cuts, but especially the extended cut where we get to see the scene of Ripley talking about her daughter and just how the movie goes on from there to play on themes of motherhood, I think make a good contrast to the harsh kind of rape themes that we were talking about yeah. in uh the first movie but oh so good hopefully at some point we'll talk about it and i'll have you back on for sure so should we segue into our next well another question we do like to ask when we talk about a movie this popular and well regarded is does it deserve the status so we've come down on good bad the ugly maybe not we've come down on Cuckoo's Nest and Casablanca is definitely... How do you guys feel about Alien? I think it deserves everything and more. I think people don't talk about it enough anymore in terms of like just the singular film being a classic. I think in mainstream pop culture, people just talk about Alien, the icon, not Alien, the film. I would love the series to return to the good graces of everyone and stop making terrible sequels. (laughs) (laughs) Just reboot the first one. Just do the first one again. (laughs) what was the guy who did uh blade runner 2049 denis villeneuve denis villeneuve i want him to get an alien movie you know he could pull it off if he could do a blade runner sequel another ridley scott film he could do a great alien film you know that would be pretty awesome blade runner is also another of my favorite movies (laughs) blade runner is so good it's in the same universe as the alien movies yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it's a what? DVD extras. <laughs> the Weyland-Yutani logo shows up in Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's one 
TV screen that says uh, Purge. On. Yeah, it's something. I think it might be like a logo on a container or something on a door. I don't remember mm-hmm. exactly. Something small. <laughs> I also agree this film is pretty fantastic. You have to watch this. Yep. I I figured that would be a verdict. But <laughs> I like to bring it's, it up. It's flawless. I really have no complaints at all. Like It's true. The perfect horror movie. Definitely. And speaking of perfect movies, Brennan, which perfect movie would you like? Us to discuss next. Hmm. <laughs> oh man, it's so tough because both of these movies are so different on yeah. the emotional <laughs> spectrum. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what I want to say for last. I think we should end on a high note. Pirates so, the <laughs> okay, so I guess Clayton, let's talk about your movie next. Let's talk about my movie. Let's do it. So mine is probably. The most obscure of the three we watched, though it's also on all the best of all time lists that you look at on Letterboxd or IMDb. But I chose 2002's City of God. Now, this is a Brazilian movie. Uh, Just a quick plot summary. In the slums of Rio, two kids' paths diverge as one struggles to become a photographer and the other a kingpin. So this movie, as the summary kind of outlined, it follows two characters, Rocket and... Lil Z, as he comes to be known, through the city of God, through Rio de Janeiro, and all of the struggles that they face and their kind of interweaving lives. I watched this movie about the same time I watched Alien, like that junior, senior year of high school when I was really getting into movies. You watched it in preparation for Alien Covenant? I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird that it was like on the list I was looking at of like movies to catch before. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm glad it was, because... I really love this movie. I've seen Godfather, Goodfellas, and whatnot, but still, when we talked about peak genre, this is what I thought about when it came to crime, and I'm excited to know what each of you thought of it, because this was your first time watching it, unlike the other two movies. It was. I went into it blind. Mm -hmm. I had never even heard of it before. Wow, really? Yeah. I had a general awareness of the film, but nothing beyond photographer living in the slums. Like That was the only thing I knew about it. And yeah, this film like really blew me away. Like this was, um, I don't remember what film we were discussing, but sometimes it's not so much the story itself, but it's how that story is told. Absolutely. And the structure of the film and the editing and the way the story's arranged and the way Rocket acts as the narrator of the story was like really gripping and like engrossing because it really feels like a story is being told to you off the cuff, you know, like it's like almost a casual conversation or interview, you know, and we look at Rocket as a young man uh, in the city of God, and then as he grows up in Rio de, Rio de Janeiro, and then, you know, there's this old large cast of characters, and like you said, they all inter- intermingle and intertwine, and just fantastic performances, mm-hmm. and amazing production design, and I'm was this filmed on location? Like, what? Uh, where was this filmed? I would assume so. I don't know off the top of my head, but um, it is a Brazilian production, so I'm guessing it was a lot of on location. It's really gritty and, like, raw, a it lot is. of the places. I loved whenever a scene would stop and the narrator would say, okay, before I go any further, I have to explain who this character is yeah, and what yes. this location is all about. And then sometimes there would be stories within stories, and you really... I felt lost, like getting lost into the story. Yeah. 
I, I loved it so much. <laughs> I feel like you talk about the filmmaking. I feel like it's almost a Tarantino movie without the artifice in his characters, right? So Tarantino, and I think he does this on purpose. He always wants to be like, you are watching a movie. The violence is ridiculous. You have slicing off heads and blood spurting out. But that also carries into the performances, in my opinion, where it's kind of overly dramatic and they don't talk like people would talk. Whereas City of God, not to say that's copying Tarantino in any way, but it's doing those similar experimental filming techniques that play with editing and narration, but the characters feel genuine and you feel invested in their lives in a way that you don't, or at least I personally don't necessarily feel invested in Vincent Vega's life. Yeah. And I think one of the strongest parts about the way this story is told is that bring so much humanity to all the characters because especially like the, the villainous characters and the more despicable ones. Cause we like, we see how they kind of descend into their vices, you know? And like, I'm thinking about handsome Ed. Is that one of, is that what he's called? The, which one? The, the veteran. What's his oh, name? Ned. Han- Ned, handsome Ned. Knockout Ned. Knockout, Knockout Ned. Ned. Like, the way that character evolves is so excellent. And the way we see that, you know, through, like, that montage of Mm -hmm. narration is so compelling and, like, gripping, you know. And Little Z, I I loved his story. It was so good. Amazing. Amazing. We'll dive into that in spoilers. But, like, what you're talking about, I feel like Lil Z, the villain of the movie or the antagonist, his inhumanity is always juxtaposed with humanity, right? Obviously, that is inherent in the way they choose to tell the story of Rocket coming up and uh, Lil Z coming up, but also just like in the actions Lil Z does. The imagery of him, not to get into spoilers, but shooting little kids in the feet and the film choosing to show it all. It's Lil Z being so like inhuman, he's unable to ask a girl to dance compared to his friend Benny, like getting along with everyone that we've met who's the love of the town yeah the city everyone in the movie and it's always it's always playing on that right it's showing you it's being truly human and genuine and showing you all that to show you how evil lil z really is i think we gotta get into spoilers there's so much (laughs) it's it's It's, hard (laughs) it's so hard to dive into it (laughs) let's do it i think the performances of the kids were something that really took me by surprise because you know kids in movies usually some of the weakest parts but i think all the child actors like definitely the highlights of the movie for me yeah yeah definitely like that opening sequence when they're all young and you know they're playing soccer playing soccer and then there's the sequence where the three teenagers rob the hotel mm-hmm. with um little nugget who becomes little z later on in the film little dice Little little dice. I don't know where you got little nugget. It, oh my god, I can't remember any of the names. Isn't there a character named Nugget? I don't remember. In a film, in a movie somewhere, probably. Somewhere. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, that sequence at the hotel is fantastic, and seeing these like teenagers, you know, like commit a crime, and their kind of guilt and mixed feelings, and to see that play out when it goes wrong, it was amazing and the aftermath of that event and how that changes their lives after this crime the runts is that what they're called i think so like little dice and no the 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 gang of children later on in the movie yes yeah 
that scene you already mentioned it where uh little z has two of them at gunpoint oh my god that felt so <laughs> real and visceral like it, did. it just like the way they were crying and just yeah. sobbing it was just disgusting it felt like a bordering on like snuff film almost like this is just yeah vile but you just can't look away right and it, that is juxtaposed with all the fun moments in the movie and it really takes you by surprise whenever it, and it keeps doing it hitting you yeah. with these terrible terrible scenes and then beautiful visuals and narration in the next yeah i mean the, i think the handheld camera though probably done out of necessity because of the budget but like it really transports you there yeah added to the style for sure yeah and then just lil z being so inhuman that he's like hand or foot and then shoots him in the opposite one and then just kills one of them and then tells the other to run away without limping. Well, he or, tells a little kid to kill you're one right, of the You're right, yeah. It's just like test of initiation into the gang as like a full-time member. And I was going to say, playing off of that like handheld style, I think that's the perfect way to tell this story. Rocket is, you know, working for a reporter, you know, as like a photographer. And the way he's like describing it as a narrator, it feels like we are exploring these horrific events as a journalist almost it like feels more yeah. personal like we are in there taking notes experiencing the horror like firsthand just while we're kind of on lil z that villain introduction of him just walking shooting the window so all the other people he's robbing this hotel with flee and then going in there and like personally executing every single person and then that montage of him growing up in the POV shots of the people he's shooting mm-hmm. is just one of my favorite villain introductions <laughs> in movies ever. It's so brutal and it makes you fear this guy from like the first act of the movie to the very end. It shows like what he is capable of and it somehow ups that in my opinion. Like you were talking about shooting the runts. It's just, I love it. <laughs> and the actor is so good and he, is able to capture kind of the younger kid who played him earlier in the movie. Like, again, we talked about it already, but the scene where he asks a girl to dance, she's like, no, I'm here with someone. And the way he just, like, kind of stares off, I saw, like, the little kid in that facial expression. It almost brought me, it almost brought me back to, like, Moonlight, where you can see the performances of the older two in Right. You can see the little kid in the performances of the older two, even though they weren't, they didn't like work together at all. And it just captures kind of the skill, the craft of everyone involved. There was legitimately a moment during our screening of this film where I was going to ask if they like waited for these child actors to grow up because <laughs> it was so. It was a boyhood. <laughs> I think we should talk about, you know, we mentioned in the discussion of Alien how it's peak horror. And how it's kind of the hidden elements and you never really know what it looks like. And just the rising tension and fear as the story progresses and that release from that tension. I think we should talk about crime in this film as it is peak crime. Mm -hmm. We see these characters. They all participate in crime for one reason or another. For some, they are attracted to it. Whereas others that are really like kind of forced into it and others aspire to do crime uh, because of their like their peers, essentially. And how there's almost kind of I think the way the film ends is almost a way of like a cyclical violence where 
one generation replaces the generation prior as they come into age. What did you guys think of crime? The crime depicted? I like that it shows all the different perspectives. You know? You have Rocket, who's like... I guess he does drugs on occasion, but he keeps trying to mug someone. And he's like, that guy was too cool. We'll mug this guy. Surely no one from... San Paul or whatever is cool and then they start chatting with him and then he's really cool too and it also shows all the stuff Lil Z is up to the murder just for fun basically the gang wars and it shows everything in between right with Knockout Ned as you're talking about and I like that it shows all perspectives but it also doesn't glorify the violence at all in my opinion in the way certain crime movies will like think about the opening of goodfellas where they're like shooting the guy in the truck and it's like i always wanted to be a gangster it's like (laughs) (laughs) i get that you're trying to make this seem cool and then we'll play on that later in the movie but still i never got that kind of tone from this movie oh not at all i think one of the things that i really enjoyed is that you never know what's going to happen at any of these you know crimes as they're being committed like anything can go down Mm -hmm. it's very unpredictable yeah and I think like that lends itself to like the film almost becomes a tragedy as it progresses, as Absolutely. it's like there's a I guess like a golden age or an age of like peace between the warring drug traffickers, you know, and you know, there's it's safe to walk around on the streets and then one thing leads to another and things escalate into like all out warfare, you mm-hmm. know, and everyone there's like so much loss of innocent life and you know, some people get out of it, some people escape, but most of them don't and end up stuck there. I would say this film is pretty Shakespearean, wouldn't you agree? And like, yeah, the I would way say the story so. Is told. I, yeah. Especially with the character of Benny, who is yeah. this, that actor just gives such a lovable performance. Like, he Definitely. just brings so much charisma to the role. It's such an interesting character because he really, like, gives a new light to the this world of crime and almost like a positive fun carefree like 1970s way like hippie way yeah and then that's of course juxtaposed with the gang warfare that results or that follows his death and ah, i'm trying to think it's he's almost like the 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 julius caesar of this story if we're talking about shakespeare here i mean you mentioned people getting out but i don't does anyone that really committed serious crimes get out because Benny's killed the guy in the beginning of the movie one of the three people one of the three older guys that robs the hotel he is shot while trying to escape with his girlfriend Rocket's brother is killed by little dice as a kid little Z I feel like the movie doesn't let anyone who is heinous get out I mean knockout Ned gets killed by uh after being corrupted yeah I think maybe I guess Rocket's the only one that makes it out alive, and yeah. his friend, who I don't think is named. Um, I'm sure he has a name, but he's pretty minor character. He's just right. kind of there to bounce off uh, <laughs> Rocket. The reveal at the end of the movie, where it says, based on true facts, that blew me away as well, because normally these movies would show it at the top, and mm-hmm. you kind of have that in the back of your mind the whole time. But I think having it at the end really makes it more powerful Mm -hmm. like because when they show it at the beginning you're like okay this is a bit too ridiculous i don't believe this and like 
by not doing that, you can just experience the story as it unfolds. Yeah. That interview footage of Ned in real life, like right. that was fascinating, you know, to see, I don't know how close it is to the source material, but the well, fact- they straight up showed that they recreated that one news interview, like almost exactly. Right. With the wardrobe and the location and everything like yeah. that. With fiction, it's almost tragedy can be fun. And then to like have that, it's like a sucker punch to like the themes and like the violence, you know, like it's, it forces you to like reevaluate the film. Like it feels like you, the moment that appears, it's like you re-experience the film a second time in an instant. Yeah. Like you watch a movie like The Godfather or Goodfellas and you might find yourself enjoying the violence for whatever reason at any point. And then if you enjoyed the violence at all whatever in this movie you see that and you're like oh i guess that really happened yeah you're like punished almost much like the characters are yeah Mm -hmm. for indulging in violence i do want to talk a little bit more about the themes um there's obviously playing on duality um which we've talked about just inherent in the way they choose to story tell the story but also i think the themes on religion are really interesting um, we talked about no one really getting out that commits crimes, but then I remembered there is the one character whose name I don't remember, but he robs the motel with all of them. And then while he's in the tree, he has the visions of like the fish or whatnot. And then he, I wrote down the quote. He says, I don't want the gangster life. I'm going back to the church. And we think he's going to die because he's being chased, but he just kind of ignores them. And then there's a shot fired, but it hits the driver mirror. And then bounces off and he walks off and we don't really see him again. So he is one character that makes it out. And he made it out by turning to religion. And I think it kind of plays on a lot of the messages that you see, especially from artists like Kendrick Lamar that have kind of touched on this idea that disenfranchised people of color almost have two choices, right? It's like violence or God, you know, wickedness or weakness to bring it to damn (laughs) because we were listening to him in the car but i don't know it's very subtle i guess the title's called city of god but it's still very subtle the religion aspects of this movie i don't know if i was thinking of that while watching the film beyond the first act when they're children because besides the the statue of jesus in the background of certain shots i don't feel as if None of the characters in the film really experience faith that much or really explore that as part of their characters. But I think that is a valid lens to view the film in. And perhaps, like, maybe if there was a stronger religious influence in their life, like, they wouldn't be experiencing this turmoil. Yeah, and that's possible. But also think about that Jesus statue. Like, he's watching over all of this, all this violence. And all these people that committed are ultimately condemned, you know? There's an immense irony in all of the people that are committing the most heinous crimes all being from the city of God. Yeah, and characters right. keep saying to each other, oh, you're from the city of God. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the themes of burgeoning sexuality in youth? If you take the lead, I didn't think, of, I didn't read the film that much into that, but. Well, there's Benny, who's trying, or not Benny, who's the main character? Rocket. Rocket, Rocket is trying to win the girl that's part of their gang, his gang, and she ends up getting involved with Benny later in the film. And 
that whole love triangle with like Benny being taken away by love or wanting to leave the gang because of love kind of causes the whole war and also little Z not being able to get any like love from anyone so he has to physically take it from Mm -hmm. knockout Ned Mm -hmm. which further causes more violence and I think little Z really didn't have any source of love in his life and then you know he met Benny and there's that kind of like familial familial uh non-romantic love that partners in crime partners in crime brothers you know and like when Benny is having that throwing away you know going away party you know like that's his like breaking point like the only source of love in his like life is now gone I think that's the only time you see him cry in the movie, yeah. Lil Z is when he's mm-hmm. holding Benny's dead body. It's like when Benny dies, like his humanity dies with him. Mm-hmm. And of course, we also see Rocket with the reporter. Right. I kind of wish that went. I felt like that was introduced, but we didn't really see much of her beyond that. I think that was maybe supposed to just be a like a symbolic moment for Rocket where he mm-hmm. becomes a man. Yeah. Right. I will say I wanted more Rocket in the film. It's not his story, but I love the character. Yeah. And I loved the actor. I think it's hard, right? Because he doesn't really change that much. Like, he's kind of innocent in the beginning, and he ends pretty innocent. He gains a confidence at the end of the film, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. But I think it tells that arc without without needing more screen time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Like, he grows because of the growth of other characters. Yeah. I think, you know, you could almost say that the city of God itself is the protagonist of the film. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels more about a movie about a place rather than people. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, like a, a time in a place. In the same way, I've been looking at a poster for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, bringing it back to Tarantino. That's more about the setting than it is mm-hmm. the people in it. Both movies that include the setting in the title you know mm-hmm. so maybe it's blatantly telling us this is a movie about this location in this time so i think you're definitely right did you want to talk about some of your favorite scenes sorry did we touch on them i feel like we touched on a lot of them i think the moment that i started to like fall in love with the film is uh learning like the relationship of the three I want to call them the three amigos. I don't remember. What are they called at the beginning of the movie? The three older brothers? Oh. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's... I mean, I feel like we've we've said everything that I yeah. can think of. At this point, it would just be gushing. I, I love the movie. Yeah. Thank you for introducing it. And to flip the question that you posed earlier, do you think it belongs in the prestigious list of greatest movies of all time? Do you think it holds up? I think it definitely holds up. I think it does belong in that echelon. I think about what I love about movies, and I've said this before, and I do love like the sci-fi world and different stuff, but what I really love is being able to, like, for two hours, live in another character's shoes in a new place, in a new setting, a new culture and whatnot, and experience something that I don't have anything attached to. And I think this movie does an amazing job of that. Like, how many other movies can you name that are about that are a coming-of-age story during in some crime-ridden other part of the world. You know what I mean? It's a very 
unique tale and it tells it incredibly well so that alone makes it something that deserves to be wherever it is on these all-time lists yeah i think there's no way you could watch this film and not get like gripped by it like this is such a great story and it's just really captivating yeah i'm really really glad you both liked it i don't have many movies that uh neither of you have seen so (laughs) it's nice to find one cool all right so does that mean we move into the climax of this podcast i think it's time it's time so for my film i chose peak pirates of the caribbean film (laughs) uh and i chose pirates of the caribbean 2 dead man's chest this is a 2006 film directed by gore verbinski by the walt disney company this film is a lot of fun but it's very strange (laughs) it's it's a very unique film i feel like pirates of the caribbean is a franchise we've just not forgotten about but we just ignore it it was a big franchise growing up like that was like early 2000s we've got star wars prequels spider-man trilogy x-men films Pirates of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. Of, it was one of the pillars of media at the time, I it think. It was, yeah. Definitely. These big, epic blockbusters that, you know, harken back to the old romantic movies of, like, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, you know, genre films. You know, Lord of the Rings, it's a fantasy film. Star Wars prequels, sci-fi. You know, it's almost like it was just this period in time where it felt like we have the budget and tools to do so much more with our storytelling. So let's just swing for the fences and let's do something weird. Let's take the characters from the original film and bring in mutant fish people as the antagonist. It's it's strange. What this film has always been had a place in my heart. What did what what are your guys' this like Well first can you talk about that place in your heart? Can you talk about how it's inspired you? So growing up I was always drawing. Uh, I always had a piece of paper in hand, a notebook or sketchbook or something like that, and scribbling away. And I remember I did a drawing of the villain, the Flying Dutchman, Davy Jones, with a tentacle beard. And I remember, like, I had it, and I like I drew each of the tentacles like coiling around each other and like interacting with each other. And I remember, like, that was like the first drawing. I was like truly proud of. Like, this is a great drawing like I'm really proud of this and like it was so much fun drawing it and then do you guys remember those old DVD players with the screen where yeah you you would have it in the car it was like a laptop for DVDs yeah I still have them I brought the DVD of this movie with me but I ended up watching like the behind the scenes making of documentary instead of watching the actual film and for the first time, like, I saw how they described how they designed the crew of the Flying Dutchman and all the fish people and how they went about modeling the tentacles and how they took a dirty coffee mug that was sitting in their, like, lunchroom and scanned it. And that's the texture of Davy Jones' skin. <laughs> For the first time, like, I realized, like, there are people making these films and there's a, you can have a career as, like, a creative industry and, like, that's when I knew I wanted to enter into that creative industry and participate in that culture. That's when I was like awakened to that. And yeah, so I was really into movies for a while. And then I transitioned into illustration. 
So I wanted to be a director or a writer for a while. And then, you know, I shifted gears to like special effects and then to illustration. So that film has always meant a lot to me in terms of my creative endeavors. Definitely. I think this is also a pillar of my childhood. And so many elements of it are just ingrained in my brain from Davy Jones playing the organ. Yes. To the music. Some of the best fucking movie music we had in our childhood. Are we allowed to curse on this program? Yes. <laughs> There's a little E attached to incredible. it. incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean... There's so much to gush about in the film. The production design, the costuming, the performances, the, the soundtrack, the soundtrack, ah. the special effects. Davy Jones and the crew. All right. Davy Jones still holds up. Some of his crew uh, don't <laughs> look at it too closely. But uh, there is just some breathtaking stuff in this film. Like the, the scenes in which the, the monster, the Kraken, attacks boats. They, like, built actual boats and, like, made these giant, like, steel columns and just dropped them onto the ship. So when the, the ships explode, they're really exploding. And, wow. like, the tentacles are just kind of composited into that scene. Oh, it's just, like, so immersive visually. And there really isn't any other pirate film or franchise. Like, Treasure Island is really the only other pirate movie mutiny on the bounty i mentioned this before is a fantastic pirate film uh it's from the 30s mm -hmm. <laughs> not really at all in the same vein of uh right pirates of the caribbean <laughs> it's pretty realistic but it's classic cinema mm -hmm. i think the first film based on a ride from disney world i think it's in disneyland i think it was originally disneyland the first film it's kind of like Pirate adventure with zombie skeleton pirates. It's like, oh, this is this is fun. This is weird. You know, this is adventurous. It's a it's a, it's a swashbuckling tale. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like in this film, it like takes those characters and like wants to do more with them. Mm -hmm. Like it felt like the previous film was very cursory, like very archetypal characters. And this film spends more time with characters. Not all of it's not all of it's great, but. I think there's more going on in the screenplay. I think this movie was the beginning. Like, not not to say it's a bad movie. Like, I, I love this movie and I loved it as a kid. But I think this is the beginning where they started to focus on the character of Jack Sparrow more. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, some of the side characters, like, uh, will get less screen time. And I think that's kind of why the franchise has fallen out of good graces. Because of the later movies focusing solely on Jack, and I don't think he's mm -hmm. interesting enough of a character on his own. He's a good Han Solo character, yeah. but not a Luke Skywalker, like yeah. Will Turner is. Mm -hmm. And we, you brought this up during the watching of it, but Will Turner, played by Orlando Bloom, is such a like refreshingly charismatic hero. Like such a, a classic hero. You know, he's got, I think I said the... The charisma of Han Solo, but like the regalness of Obi-Wan. Yes. Yeah. There's when he's attacked by all the fishmen pirates, like he like says like have at you or like yeah. stay back something, you know, some just pure and honorable. Exactly. And seeing him play off 
the more unsavory characters is always like fun. You know, yeah. like the banter between him and Jack is He's a great foil great. to Jack. Mm-hmm. It's a shame when he, you know, he kind of disappears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about spoilers and maybe dive into some specific scenes we love? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think, can we talk about some of the boring scenes? Because that was something that I was not expecting returning to this movie. Yes. Because I hadn't seen, I haven't seen any of the Pirates of the Caribbean films since I was a kid. And I kind of Same. forgot how much I liked the franchise because it was a big part of my childhood too. And it was like remembering an old friend that I'd forgotten about. <laughs> right. And I don't know. It was cool with the the opening of the film being like a diplomatic scene. But, <laughs> but it's not the way to start the film. It's, it's not fun. And there are a lot of scenes where it's like those characters, the British army or whatever, are talking to each other. <laughs> and it's so boring. And I just want to get right. to the next pirate scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The beginning definitely drags. Like the first 25 or 30 minutes really needed to be fixed up. Like I completely forgot about that. And the scene where they're all fighting over the chest, I feel like there's no stakes in that scene because... Just the choreography of... They're not all trying to kill each other and it's like campy music. And I'm like, yeah. can we just can we move on, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one problem I have with the choreography is that like a lot of times... It seems like they're just trying to connect their swords and then, like, throw someone over or, like, punch them with the pommel of the sword rather than actually moving for, like, killing blows. Like, it feels very theatrical, sometimes to a detriment. Sometimes yeah. it works, sometimes it doesn't. It does lead into one of the best action sequences in the film, though. Uh, the wheel. The so wheel. Good. That is great. The reason why I picked this movie is because I wanted to talk about the wheel so badly. We brought it up in the Star Wars podcast yeah, for your yeah, we did. Terry Talks podcast. It's been on my mind since then. <laughs> so here we go. Let's get into the wheel. The wheel. This is one of the best action sequences ever, in my opinion. It is so much fun. We have Jack, we have Will, and then Norrington. Yep. Uh, and they're fighting over the key, right? They're fighting over the key to the dead man's chest, mm-hmm. uh, which has Davy Jones... Should I say it? Are, are yeah. we already in spoilers? Yeah, we moved into spoilers. Okay. It has his still beating heart in inside, and they want to get that heart as like a bargaining chip so that a curse can be removed off of Jack. And so they they're, they all want the heart for different reasons, and so they're all fighting for the key. And they're fighting their way up through this kind of jungle island somewhere in the Caribbean, and there's an abandoned monastery or church there. And they're fighting up this like castle with all these crazy staircases and it's crumbling around them. And then they jump onto this water wheel and they start rolling down a hill while maintaining their balance on this wheel. They're fighting inside of it. They're fighting outside of it. It's insane. It is so inventive and like interesting. And it's like one of those sequences where it's like every two minutes they twist it. You know, like, oh, now... They're doing this. Now they're doing that. Now they're all on the inside. Now the camera's rotating with the wheel. So you can yes. see how yeah. they're experiencing it. Like they get, they use this, like that wheel as much as they can. I think it goes on as long as it needs to until you're like done with it. Like I've mm-hmm. had enough. I love that wheel. It's amazing. And you mentioned Norrington, which I know we're all just anxiously waiting to talk about. <laughs> I do kind of like when villains 
play a different role when the villain of the original movie plays a new role in the sequel yeah like he's a completely different character in this movie and i feel like that's worth mentioning and if he was the same old boring guy i feel like scenes like the wheel would have been like oh i don't care about him can it just be will and jack but i feel like he actually brings an interesting element into the movie as a whole but that's set piece in general i think this is a good time we could segue into when what's his name Mimosa shows up at the end. <laughs> Barbosa. Barbosa. Uh, when he shows up at the end, and really big sequel bait. And I think this movie and uh, At World's End really yeah. feel like two halves of one movie. I wrote the exact same thing down in my notes. It's like Deathly Hollow gets all the blame slash credit for being the one to do like the two part finale, but this movie did it you yeah. know like that is so clearly the end of act one yeah for sure and at world's end is that two. and davy jones is only introduced into like an hour into the film like it's a while before we actually see him you know and kind of too long definitely i he's so excellent he's the best part in my opinion amazing performance from bill nye nye yeah bill nye bill nye <laughs> the squid guy yeah, uh, i don't know i think I wish this movie had been a bit shorter. Cut out some of the fluff. There's a couple scenes with the British people back at whatever colony that is where they're just talking about the plot. Yeah. Your daughter Elizabeth. And just that plot really never really went anywhere. Who's the female character? Elizabeth, played by Karen Knightley. She really didn't have a whole lot to do in this movie except to just kind of... Yeah prop up everybody else and just kind of be annoying except for the ending well except for the ending yes i didn't like the love pentagram or it's <laughs> well i don't think she was actually in love well i don't know it's unclear i feel like a part of her did actually love her or love him but i don't know it's i, I do like the ending where she gets close to Jack and then chains him to the ship to go down with the Kraken. Pirate move. That, goes, can we talk about that scene? Sorry. Yeah. That scene and then the shot of Jack Sparrow unsheathing his sword as like the giant Kraken mouth comes up. Like I, I've only seen this movie maybe once or twice when I was a child and haven't watched it since. Mm-hmm permanently ingrained in my brain it's one of those shots that like i've carried with me through my whole life through my whole like love for movies and it's honestly like what i was waiting for like you guys were waiting for the wheel i was waiting for like that (laughs) ending scene because it's just like top 10 betrayals in anime you know (laughs) it's it's up there (laughs) yeah it's it's a great uh resolution to her character and that's really carried into the next film where she's even more of a pirate yeah I think she's like one of the pirate lords in that council scene, right? That's that, one of the few things that I remember from that movie. I don't remember a whole lot. I almost wish we had double feature both of them, but that would have been like five and a half hours. That's a lot of pirates <laughs> <laughs> of the Caribbean. Yes, on Stranger Tides, <laughs> Dead Men no, Tell, No Tales, No Tales, TM. Yeah, uh, really glad. We got to rewatch it. Do you guys have any other comments or? Well, how do you feel about the franchise as a whole? Okay. I remember seeing the first movie in theaters and like loving it. It was so much fun. 
And so, like, when the sequel came out, like, three years later, I was like, I remember, like, this movie. I remember walking into the theater and being like, oh, I hear this movie's really scary. Like, what if, what if I see this film and have nightmares for weeks? And my mom was just like, well, you'll just have to deal with that, I guess. And I remember I loved the film. And so I was, like, incredibly hyped for, like, the third one. And I remember I enjoyed it. You know, I was like, all right, that was good. And, like, moved on in my life. And then I saw the fourth movie and I forgot the plot as I walked out of the theater. It was so boring. And there's like a fountain of youth and most expensive movie ever made. Really? Yeah. On Stranger Tides. I don't remember anything about that movie. And I saw it in theaters by myself. The person I was seeing it with bailed, but I'd already bought the ticket. (laughs) So I was like, I I guess I'll just see it. It's it's boring. It's forgettable. And it's like. It's a follow-up to the third movie because he has that map that moves. Oh, I do remember that. Because he's like, the third movie ends with him getting the map to the Fountain of Youth. And that's what starts the fourth movie. So it's kind of like a direct sequel. But none of the other characters show up. So it's just Jack with a map. Barbosa shows up at the end, I think. That's just what he does at this point. Yeah, he's he's the third act guy. (laughs) And then the fifth movie I watched with my friends like this past winter and it was laughably bad like we were laughing the entire time it was horrible and i think just the film the films rely too much on jack now you know the first three films are like a return to classic adventures you know swashbuckling adventures and the fourth and fifth films just feel like jack sparrow doing weird stuff it feels like they don't know what they want to do with the franchise I think what's so weird about Pirates of the Caribbean as a franchise is like you look at something like the Alien franchise or the City of God franchise. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Third one's not great. (laughs) Die Hard, Terminator, Star Wars, and like they had a lifespan where they were considered classics for a long time. And Mm -hmm. then it was like years later, decades later, where their reputations really became tarnished because of terrible sequels. And Mm -hmm. I think. Pirates of the Caribbean franchise was cut down too soon, you know? Like, it it barely had enough time to shine before it had terrible sequel syndrome. They they didn't wait long enough to do a fourth movie. Yeah. I think the third one was, like, 2007, and then I think the fourth one was, like, 2011 or 2013. Yeah. It wasn't long. Yeah. And, like, the third movie had such a resolution, like, such a good ending, like... The adventure shall continue for these characters, you know? They should have waited longer. Yeah. Anything else about Pirates of the Caribbean before we introduce next week's movies? Well, is now the part of the next. show where we uh, decide which film to destroy? What? <laughs> this is a uh, half in the bag? <laughs> we don't do that on that. That's, that's oh, their okay. thing. Sorry. On that note. Well, if we had to destroy one of these three films... Sorry, Ted. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> there are better action-adventure films, but there's only one Pirates of the Caribbean film. There's only one film that inspired you to go into art. Exactly. That's what matters. As far as peak Pirates of the Caribbean goes, you can't do any better. Except maybe the first one. <laughs> the first one's pretty great, too. Yeah. That fight at the end with the skeletons, where they're in and out of the light, the moonlight... They're like zombie, yes. not zombie. Pretty fun. On that note, 
we're going to quickly run through the movies that we're going to be doing next episode because we have a Jojo Rabbit screening to catch. Our next topic is experimental. Ted, you're looking at me like you don't have a movie picked out. No, I, <laughs> I, I do have a movie. I just didn't remember what the, the topic we were doing was. Yes, we're doing experimental. And the guest will be my brother, Ryan. Um, so really excited about that. He will be having us watch Schenectady, New York which I've never seen, I know very little about. Heard amazing things about it. Same, I'm excited. I will be having you all watch a short film, so you lucked out. It's only 17 minutes, but it is one of the more moving things I've ever seen in my life. It's directed by the same guy that did It's a Beautiful Day, sci-fi short called World of Tomorrow. So I'm excited to discuss that with both of you. And Ted, what movie will you be recommending? Uh, A while back, Brandon and I took an art history class with Chip Sheffield called From the Machine Aesthetic to the Cyborg Age, where we looked at art and literature at the turn of the century with the rise of the industrialized world and how people related to that and adapted to that. And one of the films we looked at in that film was, or in that class, was Man with the Movie Camera. Man with a Moving Camera, I think is what it was called, right? One of those two. Uh, And it is a fantastic short experimental French film that really explores cinema in an exciting way. So I'm eager to share that with you guys and revisit it. I'm very excited as well. I think it's going to be a fun discussion. Brennan, thank you for coming on. Is there anywhere that people can find you online? Yeah, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Daily Obstruction. I post little comics and other artwork that I work on. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. I yeah. hope to be back in the future. Absolutely. This was so much fun. I loved watching these movies and discussing them with mm-hmm. both of you. Definitely. You can find my work at These Fine Times on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm more active on my Instagram. I'm catching up on Inktober right now, and I post some comic work that I've been doing. Clayton, is there anywhere... Yeah, you can find my two other podcasts anywhere you get podcasts. That's Stories Worth Sharing and the Terry Talks Podcast. If you look up my name and scroll past my Spotify profile, you will see my (laughs) uh, podcast. But yeah, so our intro song, as you noticed, we're going to stick with Jazz Nut by Soul Human. And thank you again for listening, and thank you to Anchor for making this podcast possible. Bye!